Welcome back to Art Holes, everybody. My name is Greg Rodolanti, and this is the podcast about art and art history, but it's more about living in a place and time when nobody's decisions make any sense and everybody is a walking fiasco with someone who has absolutely no background in any of these topics except about being a fiasco. We are on the finale of the Caravaggio series, uh, sort of. Um, I had to move the goal line a bit on this one. Uh, what was supposed to be the final episode is now a two-parter. This has actually been a helpful learning experience, uh, and if you're listening to the show as this episode goes out live, my apologies that you had to go through the growing pains with me. Uh, here's what happened. I foolishly assumed that everything after the Nooch's murder could be wrapped up in one episode, and once my notes started to push two hours, I had to break it up, mostly for my own sanity. I'm starting to realize that the upper limit of my well-being when it comes to the episode length is just about an hour, and once the episode goes over an hour, the whole process compounds and things start to get quite a bit squirrely. So we are in the finale of this story, and even though the finale is now two episodes, I would say that generally it's still helpful to think of this period in Caravaggio's life as being almost self-contained. And while we're dealing with comparatively a much shorter period of time in his life than the rest of the story, so much happens. There's so much crazy shit that's coming. Before this, Caravaggio's life has been a series of evolving events and people and artistic developments. But from here on out, there's one bit of context and commonality that makes this part of his life distinctly separate from the rest. He is on the run for murder. That will never not be a thing. Caravaggio's life on the run, the art that comes out of it, and what his art meant to Western art moving forward, and really just all the shenanigans that we have left. And let's be honest, he was never going to go out gracefully or die peacefully in bed at 80. I'm sure that nobody's surprised by that. It's pretty ridiculous in retrospect that I thought this could have been one episode. The bullshit tennis match with a nooch that was really a duel, that only lit the fuse for the rest of our story. Caravaggio accidentally killed the Nooch on May 28, 1606 because he couldn't stick the landing on Plan A, which was just to cut his balls off. And Caravaggio was a famous guy, even the Nooch too, he wasn't just some random dude in the city, this was like a TMZ-worthy news event for the time. By May 31st, people in Rome had begun sending letters to their associates outside the city and spread the news of the fake tennis match, the Nooch's murder, and Caravaggio's injury and disappearance, the whole thing. It wasn't until about a month after the duel, though, that authorities in Rome began to get an accurate picture of what happened that night. On the night of May 28th, after everybody that was present for the duel scattered, both sides tended to the two most seriously wounded. As the Nooch's brother and brothers-in-law took him to the barber surgeons of the Via della Scrofa, Caravaggio's dual team brought Petronio Topa to a barber surgeon named Pompeo Navagna. Topa was the guy who jumped in and protected Caravaggio when Giovanni Francesco, the Nooch's brother, when he jumped into the duel, and Topa paid for it. Topa's wounds and Giovanni Francesco's lack of wounds were a good indicator as to how much more talented of a fighter the Nooch's brother was. Topa had a left cut to his arm that was so severe that seven pieces of bone shards had to be removed before the wound could be dressed. He also had a wound to his left shin, his left heel, and curiously, eight serious stab wounds all targeted up on his left thigh. 
Given how skilled of a swordsman and soldier that Giovanni Francesco was, how common castration was as a statement wound, and also witnessing Caravaggio's attempted castration of the Nooch, his brother, to be able to cause eight clustered stab wounds on a moving target who was fighting back with his own sword in the middle of a melee with your body flooded with adrenaline as your brother is getting attacked, I don't know how likely it is that eight stab wounds were happenstance. I think it's pretty likely that Giovanni Francesco was trying to cut off Topa's balls as well. This is, I'll be totally honest, when I first started this story, this is way more cast- This entire thing has been way more castration-centric than I imagined. The barber surgeon, Navanya, he did his best, but he eventually determined that Topa's wounds were fatal. And before Topa died, the Spiri took him to the Tor de Nona prison for interrogation. And we don't know what Topa's testimony was, and he disappeared from history after these events. So I think it's pretty likely that he may have died from his wounds, most likely from some sort of infection that developed. Another victim of attempted castration and completely unnecessary violence. Nobody else who witnessed the Nooch's murder was questioned because everybody left Rome immediately after the duel happened. You didn't just stick around and trust that things would be handled on the up and up. With the judicial system the way it was, it was almost always a better idea to leave immediately and just let things cool down. Especially when a duel is involved and at least one person died, likely two, there were so many acts of violence in Rome, just give it time and let yours become old news. After a few months in the countryside, you're very relaxed, come back, tell your side of the story, and it'll work itself out. Giovanni Francesco, the Nucci's brother-in-law, Honorio, that one-eyed guy named Paolo Aldato, they were all issued summons to appear and give their testimony. And since they weren't around to respond, they were all presumed guilty and were banished from Rome under a mandatory exile. Get the fuck out! After the investigation, the Spiri also had enough evidence to conclude that this was indeed a pre-planned duel and not just a tennis match that had gone wrong. They had witnesses who saw everyone standing around the tennis courts beforehand, as well as testimony from a friend of Topa's, Francesco Pioverno, who talked to Topa earlier in the evening, and Topa said something that implied he knew that there was about to be some shit that was going to go down. Not to mention that to argue Caravaggio and the Nooch just decided to have a random tennis match at night, two gentlemen of sport, it was, it was just an absurd position to take. Nobody bought it, especially with the history between those guys. The duel may have only involved the combatants and their seconds and witnesses, but there was fallout beyond the death and subsequent banishments. Violence doesn't exist in a vacuum. Lavinia Tomassoni, the Nooch's wife, was now in the unenviable position of being a single mother in 1606, and Felicita was only a baby. Lavinia's situation, it was just a different calculus than now. And again, I'm not a single mother, but I can't imagine that's easy even today. So I'm not going to judge what happened because, you know, who the hell am I? But it still happened. Lavinia said that she was too young to raise a child on her own, and she wanted to get remarried, and the possibility, just the odds of that happening were way slimmer if she had a newborn baby in tow. 
The Nooch's mother, Lavinia's mother-in-law, said that she was too old to take care of the baby. So Lavinia gave Felicita to Cesare Pontoni, who was the Tomassone family lawyer and apparently someone who was very flexible in what he'd take as a retainer. It's either Scooty, Lyra, or a baby. Lavinia did eventually get married within the year, and good for her. And the few things that we do know about Felicita is that she eventually dropped her first name and went by her middle name, Plautila, and she ended up as a nun in the convent of San Silvestro. One of the biographers was a bit, I don't know, I guess judgy as he explained the situation and said that Lavinia was, I guess because she married so soon after and gave up Felicita, quote, hardly a model wife and mother. I... That's a bit much. I'd like to think that Lavinia's mindset was if she didn't get remarried, both her and Felicita might starve to death. Maybe both, I don't know, be forced into being sex workers, and Lavinia chose the best of the bad options. These are life choices and circumstances that are very hard to connect to, and all this death and destruction of families and banishments, all of the damage that was caused, everybody directly involved had their own accountability. Topa, Giovanni Francesco, all those guys were responsible for their own decisions. But still, while personal accountability is great, at the center of all of this, just a touch point for everything, from his relationship to Falid, to his violence-fueled bromance with Honorio, the hostility between him and the Nooch, the fulcrum point for all of this death and anguish and havoc was Caravaggio, someone who at the time even was recognized as the most important and impactful Western artist since the Masters of the Renaissance. Which is a crazy thing for me especially to be saying because I'll be totally, I think I might have said this up front, up until relatively recently, maybe like a year ago-ish, I had no idea who Caravaggio was. I'd never even heard the name before. At the end of the investigation, the Spiri didn't have the exact details as to what caused the duel, but they were left with a dead nooch in a live Caravaggio, so Caravaggio was condemned as a murderer. His punishment, in absentia, was an indefinite exile from Rome, and he was also given a bando capitale, a capital sentence, and that meant that anybody within the papal states could kill Caravaggio and get away with it. And it wasn't just a passive sentence. As incentive to ensure punishment, a bounty was also put on Caravaggio's head, but literally just his head. All you had to do was bring back Caravaggio's head and you could collect your reward. And that would ordinarily be game over for the average person. But Caravaggio was worth more alive than he was dead. So he had no choice but to find protection to bide his time before he could cash in on that reality. And it is a reality, because if there's anything we know about this story, there's always a way out for this guy. He's not going to let being condemned as a murderer mess up his party. For right now, though, Caravaggio was in danger from basically all of law enforcement, the Nuches family who wanted revenge, and any person who wished to take advantage of the reward on his head. At the moment in his life when he is in the most trouble, when Caravaggio went to Costanza Colonna, this is really the point when you can more clearly make the distinction between her protection over him as being personal, rather than the financial and legacy desires of, say, a cardinal nephew Scipione Borghese, who was more interested in Caravaggio's art. 
This is the moment when Costanza had the most influence and leverage over him. And even at this moment, still working within the context that he was worth more alive than dead because of his art, Costanza didn't try to acquire even one of Caravaggio's paintings as a, a repayment or a condition for her help, even though there would likely be generational impact on the Colonna family just by having Caravaggio paintings in their collection. Because at the end of the day, this is really not about art for her. This was about something different. It's the empathy and the sympathy of a mother trying to help out the train wreck of a son. And this, this maternal generosity, it's going to bite Costanza in the ass because no good deed goes unpunished. When Costanza snuck Caravaggio out of Rome, he went to the small town of Zagarola, which was about 20 miles or 32 kilometers outside of Rome in the Alban Hills. This was firmly Colonna territory. Anybody attempting to reach him there would risk starting a war with the Colonna dynasty. And this really was the level of protection Caravaggio needed. People were tracking his movements and trying to capture him actively. Almost definitely the Nuccia's family and friends. But also a creditor who pops up a few times as an unexpected return character in the rest of the story. Bottom line is, Caravaggio is actively being hunted. For a few months in Zagarolo, he stayed with Duke Marzio Colonna at the family's palace and fortress, high up on a hill and surrounded by formidable terrain. This is where the wheels were set in motion for Caravaggio to orchestrate his attempt at redemption and to secure a papal pardon for the Nuccia's murder. And this was all great aspirationally, but any plan that could possibly result in a pardon would first require art. He started by painting a second version of the Supper at Emmaus, and I glossed over the first version of the Supper at Emmaus a few episodes ago because I thought it might be more interesting to talk about them together to track his and our journey. Caravaggio put all of himself into his paintings, his emotional pathology, his desires, his insecurities, his fears. We saw this all the way back in the 1590s with Boy with a Basket of Fruit and Mario, all the way through the Felide paintings, and this makes him a little easier to track emotionally, at least as an inference or an educated guess as to the state of mind. So when he paints the same thing twice, you can think of the surrounding context and the tone of the painting makes more sense. And similar to the differences in tonal shift uh, between both of his St. John the Baptist paintings, the 1606 painting of the Supper at Emmaus is much more foreboding than the first. The first Emmaus painting was paid for by Girolamo Mattei's brother in early January of 1602. So this was a mistake I made. If it was paid for in early January of 1602, it's more accurate that it could be pegged as being completed in 1601. Very late 1601. I think in whatever episode that came up, maybe episode 5, I said 1602. But since it wouldn't have been paid for unless it was fully finished, we're looking at a 1601 completion date. Uh, so my apologies, I should have been more precise there. And I'm also like 99% sure I said in an episode or two ago that Caravaggio and Mario met at Cesari's studio. And I don't want to go back and re-listen because that makes me feel uncomfortable. So let's just assume I misspoke. Uh, they met at Lorenzo Siciliano's studio. And that's where the two of them painted cheap souvenir paintings of the, the famous historical figures. And just wanted to get that one out of the way too. Uh, because it's sort of relevant later on. Uh, okay. Back to the differences between the 1601 and 1606 Supper at Emmaus paintings. Uh, the 1601 Supper at Emmaus is just much lighter in the drama. Jesus looks sad and beardless uh, because in the Bible, his disciples didn't recognize Jesus at first. So removing the beard was an interesting choice to explain why that happened. 
but the rest of the drama is much more theatrical. It's a, it's a stage play. The guy all the way in the left looks like he's about to leap out of his chair, and the hole in his jacket is a not-so-subtle representation of poverty, and the guy in the right is gesturing wildly, and there's even a light drama in the still life. It looks like the bowl of fruit was knocked by a wildly gesticulating guy, and it's about to fall off the table. Even the background is lighter in the 1601 version. The background of the 1606 Supper at Emmaus painting, though, it has none of the earthly background tones. It is dark, and Jesus looks more exhausted and distraught, and the bags under his eyes are more pronounced, and he's got a scraggly beard, unlike the shaven Jesus of the earlier version. And the people surrounding him, his disciples Luke and Cleopas, and an innkeeper and his wife, everyone is less theatrical and expressive. It's a, it's a much more subdued and introspective scene. Even the food and the table look sadder in this painting. This was likely Caravaggio sending a message through his art, like a young child who disobeyed a parent, that he's sorry, and he's seriously considering what he'd done. It also likely reflects his darkening mood, the now not-so-happy times of being on the run and no longer being the golden boy of Rome. The second painting from this time in Zagarolo was David with the head of Goliath, and that's a pretty well-known Old Testament story, so no need to get into what that image represents. The model for David is, of course, Chico, only he's no longer the bright and happy sex kitten. He's tired and he looks grossed out as he's holding the head of Goliath at arm's length, almost like he's not excited about what he had to do to Goliath. He's a reluctant hero. The model for the head of Goliath is Caravaggio himself, and the decapitated head is slack-jawed and still bleeding, and the entire painting is ominous and dark and it also has a very specific message to a very specific person. These two paintings were completed, and now it's time to get them to their intended recipients. The Supper at Emmaus painting was sold to a banker named Ottavio Costa, which was necessary because Caravaggio needed money now that he was on the run. And the David and the Head of Goliath painting was a gift, a gift for Cardinal Nephew Scipione Borghese. This is the exact strategy that Caravaggio used when he painted St. Jerome writing as a thank you for Scipione brokering that Mariano settlement, the guy whose head Caravaggio hit with a hatchet. And getting Scipione to be his champion again was crucial to getting the Nuccia's murder cleaned up. Scipione was the Pope's, uh, his uncle's, a chief administrator of justice, so above all else, he was in direct control over Caravaggio's fate, and I think that's why Caravaggio painted Chico's face as if he were disgusted at having to kill Goliath. It was a message that if Scipione didn't remove the bounty over Caravaggio's head, he may end up regretting it, that violent justice, even if warranted, can be a mistake or there can be regret. On David's sword in the painting is the acronym HOCS, which stands for Humilitas Oxidit Superbium, which is very poorly pronounced Latin for Humility Kills Pride. That's the exact phrase that was used by St. Augustine when he commented on the Old Testament story of David and Goliath. So by using his own head as the model for Goliath and using that inscription, the message was clear. Caravaggio was saying he was prideful, he screwed up, and he wished to be forgiven. Wilson! I'm sorry! I'm sorry, Wilson! The Colonnas, they ensured that the paintings were delivered to Rome, and both paintings did exactly what they were supposed to do. 
the free painting, the gift to Scipione Borghese, was a clear and incredibly valuable reminder of Caravaggio's worth and an incentive to secure a papal pardon, also known as a straight-up bribe. In a turn of events which shocks no one, the painting of course worked, and Scipione Borghese got right to work on coming up with a justification for a papal pardon, but it would take time and patience, and also Caravaggio not screwing up anymore. That other painting, the Second Supper at Emmaus painting that was sold to Ottavio Costa, that not only gave Caravaggio the money he needed to travel, but it was also the beginning step in a much longer plan. Because Ottavio Costa, he wasn't just a banker, he's also a pawn in the greater strategy which he is almost certainly not aware of. This was a plan with a lot of contingencies, all with the end goal of getting a pardon, but it's a very complicated situation with a lot of moving parts, as being on the lam for murder tends to be. The one thing that was abundantly clear before all other things was that staying this close to Rome was dangerous. Word travels quickly, and a papal pardon could take many months, maybe even longer, so he needs to be on the move until things settle down. Even though he was protected, word had already reached Rome that Caravaggio was staying at Palazzo Colonna in the Alban Hills, and he was plotting and strategizing a way to get back into the city. Carefully tracking these rumors weren't just the Nuccia's family and friends, there are also letters that survived from Fabio Massetti to his employers. Massetti was the guy from last episode who gave Caravaggio the 12 Scudi advance, then another 20 Scudi advance to complete a painting that Caravaggio never did. Yeah, I bet you didn't think you're going to hear from that guy again. He still thinks he's getting his 32 Scudi back, which is an adorable hope to have. Stay positive, Fabio. Never give up. With the plan in place, Caravaggio and Chico are on the move, and they're going to Naples. They're headed south, deeper into Spanish territory, but that was the only move that really made sense. Going north wouldn't really do much. There was nothing back home in Milan that could get Caravaggio out of this sort of trouble, especially because he originally left that city because he didn't not kill that police officer. After that, further north were the countries in Europe that were predominantly Protestant. There's no reason for him to go there. He was a famous Catholic artist, and his best bet was the Pope. So Caravaggio went south to prove himself a repentant murderer, committed Catholic, and still a brilliant painter of religious art. And a guy who really, really means it this time. If you just forgive him and help him out once more, he'll never ask again. He gets it now. He understands he said that last time too, but last time was different because of some other stuff. This time is different. He really means it. He promises. The other benefit of Naples was that Caravaggio could still be babysat by the Colonnas, who had a lot of family connections in the city, and this was a grown man who can't be left alone at all to his own devices. Oh yeah? I run with 12 gangs, and we only commit hate crimes. I'll do what I want. As Caravaggio and Chico approached Naples, they saw a city that was much more of a metropolis, with a population three times that of Rome, a huge section of which was in abject poverty, and a culture that was still immersed in the Counter-Reformation. When they arrived, Naples was the second largest city in southern Europe. It was a port city, with the majority of the economy being in shipping and trading, and it was also the largest city that bridged Europe with northern Africa and the Ottoman Empire. 
Ever since the Ottoman fleet was nearly destroyed during the Battle of Lepanto, the seas were less dangerous and the city absolutely exploded. The elite class, the city's aristocracy, began to see the rise of the merchant class. The traders, bankers, manufacturers, lawyers, accountants, just the list goes on and on. The poor population of the city, however, grew at a much faster rate. And it didn't seem like the rich were too concerned with building a social and logistical infrastructure for anybody besides themselves. They weren't thinking of the city as being a living and breathing being that needed to maintain its own balance. There wasn't enough housing for the increasing population, which was growing by day from everyone coming from Europe and really anywhere the Mediterranean touched. This population and housing difficulty was exacerbated because so much of the land was taken up by massive churches and land holdings of the elite. The housing issue was made even worse because the government enacted building restrictions, really dumb building restrictions, which prevented people from building outside the city to keep it from growing too fast. So people built up, and many of the residential buildings had twice as many stories as was usual for Europe. It was estimated that Naples had a population density of 21,000 people per square mile, which was extraordinarily dense for not only the time, but surprisingly dense when compared to the lack of municipal infrastructure. So many people bunched together made for consistent problems with communicable diseases such as the plague, dysentery, typhoid, smallpox, and syphilis. The population density and fast growth also meant that there were more people than jobs, so there was a serious unemployment issue. And it also meant there wasn't enough food, so people's diets were rich with pasta because grain stored easier and it could feed in greater numbers, and they ate fewer vegetables and fruits. That meant if you weren't starving, you likely had issues with rickets, scurvy, and goiters. The communicable diseases then teamed up with the nutritional deficiencies, the lack of jobs, the smushed together people, and it all made for a population that was broadly in crisis. Because there was such a large population of the sick and poor, the church powers in Naples were still operating in the fear of revolution and uprising mode, which actually happened a few times in the early to mid-1500s there. So the religious appreciation for the poor being the closest to Christ, the viewpoint that made Caravaggio's career in Rome, it was still humming in Naples. The pendulum swing back to the ornate celebration of the church, it hadn't even touched the city yet. The social and political environments, it just couldn't support it. There were too many very poor and very sick people. For purposes of our story, this is great. This is fantastic news. Think about this from a strategic standpoint. Naples was out of the Papal States, so this touches on that weird balance of power between the church and secular powers. The Spiri couldn't just roll into the city and arrest Caravaggio if he had some sort of political cover. There's also a bunch of churches and cathedrals that need art or could go for an upgrade, and everybody is poor and sick, and I'm sure a bunch of people don't have shoes. This is fantastic fantastic news for him. Soon after Caravaggio and Chico arrived in Naples, uh, sometime before October of 1606, he was immediately in demand by the church leaders, who were well aware of his reputation and artistic style. 
by late October, so really soon after, early November-ish, while staying at the Kelowna home in Chiaya, a protected block on the outskirts of the city, he accepted a commission for the Chiesa del Piomonte della Misericordia, a new church in the center of Naples. And the Piomonte della Misericordia were a religious order, but they weren't dedicated to a saint, but to the concept of the seven works of mercy or pity. The seven works, or I guess it's called acts sometimes, of mercy, again, or called pity sometimes, were a series of doctrines that either came directly from the Bible or were inspired by it and Jesus' teachings, and they were added to the list over time. Instead of thou shalt not kill or steal, the commandments against certain activities, the works of mercy were set to, uh, they were ideals to strive for, prescriptive pursuits that focused on the sick and the needy, stuff which Naples was full of. Uh, They are feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, provide shelter for the homeless, visit the sick, clothe people who are naked, bury the dead, and visit the imprisoned. I believe burying the dead was one of the acts, if not the only act of mercy that was not identified in the Bible, which I'm sure was added later to the list in part because of what happened during the plague and people just didn't bury any bodies and the disease spread all over the place. Caravaggio was going to be given 400 ducats by the confraternity to paint an altarpiece that depicted all seven works of mercy at once, with the focus of the painting being the Virgin Mary, the original Madonna of Pity. This is a very complicated commission for Caravaggio, though it seems when he's challenged the most, he produces his greatest brilliance, and this counts on the list. He completed the seven works of mercy and was paid his full fee on January 9th, 1607, only seven weeks after he was commissioned, and it was an absolute success. The painting has influences of the balance of composition from the Renaissance, sort of like Raphael's Transfiguration from the early 1500s, but it's collapsed in a dramatic and concentrated scene. It's also gigantic at 12 and a half feet by over eight feet. The scene is late night in the alleyways of Naples. Mary and the wee baby Jesus are looking on from above, surrounded by angels as they stare down at a busy and complicated series of events. Each act of mercy is represented at once, happening at the same time, almost like it's an acknowledgement of the compacted streets of Naples that contain so much suffering. Not only is the painting in Caravaggio's visual style, but it's also an incredibly cerebral painting. It's easy to forget that Del Monte's original recognition of Caravaggio's talent was that he painted thoughtfully and intellectually. Mostly it's easy to forget that because he tried to cut off another man's balls. After that, it's really easy to forget almost anything but he's a smart person and he's showing it here. The people in the seven acts of mercy, they're all historical figures and people from the biblical stories, and they're all presented in current day Naples. It's like those paintings of famous musicians throughout history, all hanging out in Jimi Hendrix's living room, just having a great time. A depiction of Samson is on the left, uh, from the Old Testament, who had his thirst quenched when water miraculously came from a hollowed out jaw of a donkey. In front of him is an innkeeper giving shelter to Jesus during his pilgrimage times, so we've got a Jesus sighting. Then St. Martin of Tours, a 4th century French bishop, is both visiting the sick and giving clothing to the naked. Caravaggio put two acts of mercy in one sub-scene of the greater composition, and that gave him some breathing room. 
The woman on the right is Pero, and the jailed man is her father, Simon, and she's breastfeeding him through the bars of the cell. And as weird as that sounds, and it is weird, it's an iconic scene and story from antiquity, and it was called the Caritas Romana, the Roman Charity. It's not the oldest story of Roman charity, uh, breastfeeding the imprisoned, but it was the most famous. And in the very back, a second source of light comes from a torch as two people prepare to bury a body. All the acts of mercy were there, and it was beautifully done, and this painting was such a success that it was so beloved by the confraternity that they turned down several offers to buy it. This painting was also crucial to Caravaggio being able to stay and work in Spanish Naples, and it secured a number of future commissions for him. This is good, for now. He's under Colonna protection, he's working, and he could bide his time while the wheels of injustice were in motion. In May of 1607, he completed an altarpiece painting called The Flagellation of Christ for a Dominican monastery. Unsurprisingly, the people of Naples that traveled through were shocked and fascinated by the brutality with which Caravaggio painted the scene of Jesus' torture before the crucifixion. They may have heard rumors of Caravaggio's style, but seeing it in person was way different. One guy's face is filled with rage as he's straight up yanking Jesus' hair back, and Jesus is being bound and absolutely manhandled. Caravaggio also finished the crucifixion of St. Andrew in 1607, which was for a private commission. He is producing a ton of art, and for the majority of people who couldn't or hadn't traveled to Rome, they're now getting to experience live what they'd heard of. Southern Italy and the Spanish were now getting a taste for Caravaggio's art, and with the city being stuck in the severity of the Counter-Reformation, he is absolutely crushing it. Things back in Rome, however, weren't going so well for Caravaggio. In the autumn of 1606, late October or early November, almost as soon as Caravaggio got to Naples, a would-be assassin named Carlo Piemontese allegedly tried to murder Johnny Testicle on Caravaggio's orders. Before this, Johnny Testicle was having a great couple of years. Even though he wasn't that talented of a painter, he was politically savvy and was affiliated with the right people. In September 1606, he was given an honorary title with something called the Cavaliere de Cristo, and in October 1606, he was elected as the new head of the San Luca Art Academy. Then in November of that year, Johnny Testicle gave a number of depositions about an attack that allegedly took place when he was walking alone to Mass at the Trinita de Monte Church. Johnny Testicle said that Piemontese was hiding behind a column on the stairs, and when he was walking down the stairs to the gardens below, Piemontese swung his sword at Johnny Testicle's head, but he only hit him in the shoulder, which cut his cloak but didn't actually cause a wound. Johnny Testicle then testified that his servant overheard Piemontese and other known associates of Caravaggio talking before the attack, and the servant said that Caravaggio's friends called Johnny Testicle, quote, that prick and other insulting words. And Johnny Testicle said of knowing Caravaggio's role in the assassination attempt, quote, I heard that he gave them something and someone else another thing, and told them to kill me, and to bring the news to Caravaggio who would give them a fine reward, unquote. 
That was just absolute gobbledygook. It was word salad and it meant nothing. And it's not a very compelling case. There were no witnesses. Johnny Testicle only offered a small cut on his hand as evidence of a wound and his ruined cloak. And the only thing tying Caravaggio to the case was the word of Johnny Testicle's own servant. We don't know if there was actually an assassination attempt or if this was a counter-strategy by Johnny Testicle to keep Caravaggio from coming back to Rome. I'm going to guess it was the latter. But either way, it worked. There was a full investigation into the assassination attempt. A lack of evidence doesn't mean as much when you have a colorful history of extreme violence against people. It is very difficult to come back to Rome and convince people you're a repentant murderer when everyone thinks that you sent an assassin to kill Johnny Testicle. If a papal pardon was going to happen, it now wouldn't be soon. He could no longer rely on the original plan to bide his time and keep painting while Cardinal Nephew Scipione Borghese worked on his uncle. By June of 1607, Costanza Colonna and her son Fabrizio Sforza Colonna were in Naples to strategize on the next steps and figure this out. Fabrizio Sforza Colonna was roughly the same age as Caravaggio, and he was the son I mentioned way back in episode 2, one of the kids that was breastfed by Margarita Aratori. He was the one that later became a famous knight, and he wasn't just a knight in some random order. He was a knight in the extremely prestigious Order of St. John. The Sovereign Military Hospitaller Order of St. John of Jerusalem, of Rhodes, and of Malta, usually shortened to the Knights of the Order of St. John because the full name is needlessly long, was one of the most elite and respected organizations in all of Christendom. It originally began as a network of hospitals, the first of which started in the year 1070 in Jerusalem. It was open to treat Christian soldiers who were exhausted from the lengthy pilgrimage to fight in the First Crusades. They got the soldiers ready for the battle after the trip. After that First Crusade was over in 1099, the organization was also militarized, now tasked with not only healing the sick and injured, but fighting on behalf of the church as well. By the end of the 13th century, the Order of the Knights of St. John had a series of hospitals and military fortresses all along the entire length of the route between Europe and Jerusalem. They were unbelievably fierce fighters, and when Christians were finally defeated and beaten back from the Holy Land, the Knights of the Order of St. John were said to be the last that were pushed out, finally defeated at the Siege of Acre in 1291. In 1310, they captured the entire Greek island of Rhodes and built forts around the island and turned it into their new headquarters. And because Rhodes was a strategic island in the Mediterranean, they also built a bunch of ships and became a naval power. They were not screwing around. They would raid Ottoman shipping vessels in coastal towns and take valuables and slaves, which, I'll be honest, sounds way more like pirating, but what do I know? In 1480, the Ottomans tried to take back Rhodes with roughly 15,000 men and 160 ships, but took losses in the thousands and were defeated by roughly 300 knights and 3,000 soldiers. It wasn't until 1522 when Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire sent an entire flotilla of ships to Rhodes that the order was finally defeated and forced from the island, and it still took six months. These knights were not messing around. By 1530, the order had a new home, when the island of Malta was gifted to them by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain. 
Malta is located south of Sicily, and it was so strategically important to Christian Europe because of its location in the Mediterranean, and Charles V was so certain that the Order of St. John was the only group of knights capable of protecting it and Europe that he gave them the entire island in exchange for an annual symbolic gift of one falcon. The Order of St. John became the number one enemy of the soldiers of the Ottoman Turks, and in the Christian and Muslim wars, they constantly brutalized, tortured, and terrorized one another. In 1565, the Ottomans tried to overtake the island in the Siege of Malta, which lasted for months and was an awful and drawn-out affair. It was said that on June 24, 1565, the Ottomans captured Fort St. Elmo and they massacred all of the Christian captives. Not to be outdone, the then Grand Master of the Order, a French guy named Jean de Villette, ordered his Ottoman captives to be decapitated and their heads were fired from cannons into the occupied Fort St. Elmo. By the time the siege was over, the Knights kept the island, despite losing thousands of men, women, and children and the battle became one of the most famous events in 16th century Europe. Only six years later, the Knights of Malta brought their fleet to join the Holy League at the Battle of Lepanto, fighting in the center division of ships next to Mark Antonio Colonna's papal fleet and under the command of Sir John of the Plague himself, John of Austria. I'm back. After the Siege of Malta and the Battle of Lepanto, the Knights of the Order of St. John reached another level in Catholic Europe. Every boy who dreamed of glory wanted to be in the Order, and every powerful family wanted their sons in it to further their family's honor and prestige. And the Pope even gave special dispensation that the Order could have its own legal system, answerable only to the Pope himself. It was exactly the type of order that Costanza Colonna would have wanted her son, Fabrizio Sforza Colonna, to join, which he did in 1602, after he was convicted of crimes that were considered so horrible and disgraceful that it wasn't even reported what they were. While Fabrizio was in prison, Costanza begged the Pope for mercy, and Fabrizio was told he could join the Knights of Malta as long as he pledged to stay in Malta for three years, which he did. And in 1605, Fabrizio was promoted to the Prior of Venice, which was kind of like being the Order's ambassador to Venice. Then he was given a seat on the governing Venerable Council and was made General of the Galleys. I am sure that Everyone sees where this is headed, and it's absolutely ridiculous that this is happening. But yes, this is actually happening. If Fabrizio Sforza Colonna could go from crimes so reprehensible that they couldn't even be spoken of, to being on the governing council and being the general of the galleys of the Order of the Knights of St. John in three years, surely Caravaggio would be allowed into the order after the measly offense of killing the nooch. If he were allowed to join, and it was by no means a guarantee, there wouldn't be a need anymore for a papal pardon, because joining the order meant that he would be granted an automatic pardon for all of his crimes. He'd then be able to return to Rome, not just with the Bando Capitale wiped out in a free man, but as a member of one of the most revered groups of knights in Europe. In June of 1607... Fabio Massetti still thought he was getting his 32 Scooty down payment back and told his bosses, quote, 
I have written a letter to Caravaggio the painter for the restitution of the 32 Scudi, although it was not the first one, and the other time he failed to send a reply. Unquote. Caravaggio would again fail to reply to Massetti's letters, because on June 25, 1607, he said his goodbyes to dear, dear Chico and boarded a ship, captained by Fabrizio, and was headed to Malta in an attempt to become a knight of the Order of St. John. Guys, how great is this? He's going to be a knight! Fabrizio and Caravaggio began the dangerous trip to reach Valletta, the capital of Malta, which was named after Jean de Vallette, the decapitation cannon guy. They were part of a flotilla of ships that originally came from Barcelona, bringing a new large flagship, uh, supplies, as well as slaves and convicts, all of which were donated by Spain back to Malta. This was Fabrizio's first mission as the general of the galleys. After picking up Caravaggio in Naples, Fabrizio's group received warning from Malta that enemy galleys were seen patrolling off the Barbary coast by the island of Gozo. There was concern that the enemy ships received intelligence that the flotilla was on its way back from a supply run and that an attack was being planned. The flotilla stopped in Sicily, where it was reinforced with more ships, and they spent the last segment of the trip under constant readiness for battle and fear of attack. On July 12, 1607, they made it to the harbor of Valletta without incident. With the rush of new potential recruits that all came after those two major incidents of heroism in history, the subsequent population had boomed, and Valletta had grown rapidly over the last 40 years. It was laid out like a grid, and it was hot and remote, but it was a busy port town surrounded by rock outcroppings and then vast farmland more inland. The good news for Caravaggio was, because Valletta had grown so fast, that meant there were a number of new churches that needed altarpiece paintings. So while there was a demand for Caravaggio's paintings, it didn't necessarily mean he could just become a knight. There were a number of roadblocks he'd need to get through first. Nobody was aware yet of the Colonna's plan to make Caravaggio a knight, and for his first few months in Malta, he most likely stayed at Fabrizio's house. Above all else, before any plans were set in motion, Caravaggio needed to stay out of trouble in Malta. It's really, really, really important he doesn't get into trouble on Malta. Outside of brothels, which were of course allowed, and not just because the prior attempt to shut them down in 1581 resulted in riots, outside of that, criminal activity was not tolerated. Just two days after Caravaggio got to Malta on July 14th, there was a party to celebrate the new arrivals. A Sicilian knight named Giacomo Marchese was joking about a painter he knew that had two wives. One of the party guests didn't take too kindly to bigamy, and the painter was referred to the local inquisitor. Even Caravaggio was called as a witness to the joke at the party, and he had to report to the inquisitor, Leonardo Carbiaro, to determine if he knew the name of the bigamist painter. Nothing ever came from the case, but this should have been a huge red flag for Caravaggio that even a joke about a crime could result in a referral of somebody to the Inquisitor. These people don't screw around. This is a law and order society. The tolerance for troublemaking was hovering around zero and the punishments were severe. If the knights didn't wear their uniforms properly without the eight-pointed star of the order on their chest, they would be confined to house arrest for 40 days, during which they were starved and taken to the public squares for regular floggings. If they did it again, they were put in prison for three months. 
If you insulted a brother knight in front of the Grand Master, you'd lose three years seniority. And if you stole, abandoned your fellow soldiers in battle, dueled, assaulted a fellow knight, or blasphemed against the wee baby Jesus, you'd be defrocked and kicked out of the order. If you killed another knight in anger, you received the traditional Maltese death sentence. You'd be publicly shamed first in front of the other knights and stripped of your title at the Church of St. John where you were first frocked. You were then strangled and thrown into the sea at night. The person Fabrizio needed to get Caravaggio in front of, somehow, and convince him to make eh, eh, just like a knight of the Order of St. John, the person in charge of all of this not-fucking-aroundedness, was the new Grand Master of the Order, a Frenchman named Alof de Wignacourt. His official title, and full name, was the illustrious and most reverent Prince, my Lord Friar Alosius of Wignacourt, Grand Master of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, Prince of Malta and Gozo. And indeed, he is a cartoon villain from a 1970s Disney movie. Wignacor was elected to Grand Master in 1601, and he was both revered and feared. He had an air of aristocracy, and he lived a life of luxury, even though he was supposed to be living a life of poverty. And he surrounded himself with a bunch of young boys, a bunch of young boys, who were all his pages. He sat atop the venerable council, the conventual bailiffs who did, I don't know, something important, and the criminal council. Not only was Wignacor a lion as a head of the order, he thought the order needed to be even more conservative. There were traditionally three levels of knights that you could be sworn into. The Knights of the Justice were the most elite order, it was the pool of knights that could sit in the Venerable Council, and they had to prove 200 years of unbroken noble lineage to even be considered. This was the level of knights for the Colonas, the Medicis, the Borgias, like that group. After that were the Knights of Grace, which was a way less strict admittance requirement, but you still needed to come from a noble family. The third level, the only group that Caravaggio, the son of a stonemason, could qualify for, were the Knights of the Magistral Obedience. This was the knighthood that you could obtain through merit, and it could be awarded by the Grand Master. It was also the knighthood that was rife with corruption, sometimes being conveyed on people for straight-up cash, and was a level of knighthood that Wignacourt believed was watering down the prestige of the order. Just before Caravaggio got to Malta, Wignacourt instituted a law that ended the Knights of Magistral Obedience. So not only did Caravaggio need to work his way up the organizational hierarchy to even get an audience with Wignacourt, he needed to impress the guy so much that he would override his ban on the only knighthood Caravaggio could qualify for. This is legit one of the reasons why I love this series so much, because even as we're closing out our story and finishing up, we're still learning absolutely useless things from a really long time ago that make no sense. The first step up the ladder was a painting Caravaggio made for a senior knight in absolute legend named Ippolito Malaspina. Malaspina was a veteran of the siege of 1565 and was the captain of one of the galley ships during the Battle of Lepanto. In 1603, he was appointed commander of the papal fleet and moved to Rome for a few years during the height of Caravaggio's success. Malaspina would have seen or been very well aware of all of Caravaggio's altarpieces and celebrated paintings. The entombment, the crucifixion of Peter, the conversion of St. Paul, all of them. 
He also had a niece who was married to Ottavio Costa, the banker that bought the second summer at Emmaus painting that helped Caravaggio escape the Alban Hills and get to Naples. This was the connection between the two. Malaspina was back in Malta and in the twilight of a long and illustrious career. Caravaggio was introduced to Malaspina and painted for him another version of St. Jerome writing. This is so much more personal of a version of St. Jerome, and it could very well be Malaspina who's modeling for the painting. There's much more of a, a musculature and physicality to the St. Jerome, and the sunburned face and the hands would be much more representative of a retired soldier who spent a lot of time outdoors, rather than just a pure academic. In addition to the skull that was also there in the first version, there's also a stone here that St. Jerome used to beat his bare chest when he was in the desert for some reason, which adds to the physicality of the image. The painting was a stunning first impression to make within Wignacore senior staff. The detail, the personal aspects, his trademark dramatic style, it was a statement of what Caravaggio could bring to the order. He next painted the portrait of another legendary knight named Antonio Martelli in the fall or winter of 1607. This portrait is not only celebrated for its detail, but also for what it conveys in Martelli's face. Similar to Malaspina, Martelli was a veteran of several famous battles, but he was also a talented and skilled diplomat and for many years was Fernando de' Medici's counselor of war. Caravaggio portrays Martelli as looking away from the viewer with strength and power, but also as if he's being introspective. It's a thousand-yard stare while contemplating the weight of his military history, the battles, the success, and the failures, and the true costs of warfare, the human cost, which adds to the burden of a military leader who has to choose to send soldiers off to possible death. That is a strong second offering by Caravaggio, and since Martelli was also a member of the Venerable Council, Caravaggio was able to get two paintings in front of Wignacore. We are almost right back to where we started in Episode 3, when Caravaggio got the card sharps and the fortune teller paintings in front of Del Monte, only instead of needing Del Monte to start his career, he needs Wignacore to save it, because Caravaggio can't help but self-destruct, even when he's reached the top. In November or December of 1607, Caravaggio reached the decision-maker. Wignacore agreed to sit and have his portrait painted. There were originally two portraits, but only one survived. The surviving painting is a conservative and regal portrait of a proud warrior in knight's armor, holding the baton of his office. Wignacore is steadfast and looking to the left, not unlike the Martelli painting, but maybe for a different reason. Wignacore was known to have a large mole on the left side of his face, so Caravaggio was able to give that a little cover. When facing the painting, on the right of the frontline protector of Christendom is Wignacore's page boy, well, one of his page boys, and not too far off to the right, really, just barely off to the right. You could almost argue that he's pretty front and center. The young boy, who is thought to possibly be Alessandro Costa, the banker Ottavio Costa's son, is so in the middle of the painting that you can't ignore him in the overall composition. Historically, people have discussed how prominently the boy is displayed, and also debated why that is. They've also debated why Caravaggio made it so, when viewing the painting, the page boy pulls the viewer's eye away from Wignacore and onto a, maybe an inappropriately intense bedroom gaze for someone so young. 
Caravaggio showing a bit of that edge to Ignacore, that plausible deniability, the cheeky sexuality, only it's with a young, young boy. It's a dangerous gambit, and whatever the reason for the image, it was now a make-or-break moment. Wignacor was the only person who could attempt to make an exception for knighting Caravaggio, and we'll find out why he can only attempt. Just like the decision that Del Monte made back in 1595 when viewing the fortune teller in Cartsharp's paintings, Wignacor looked at his portrait, looked over at Caravaggio, eh, eh, just let looked back at his portrait and thought, this is my kind of asshole, I can work with this. Caravaggio received an award for the portrait, a cross of the Order of St. John, and Wignacor agreed to try to get Caravaggio knighted for merit in the magisterial obedience category. I'm not 100% sure why he couldn't just overturn his own rule and do it unilaterally, but for whatever canonical reason that, I'll be honest, finding the answer to that was the limit of my intellectual curiosity. I really hit a wall on that one. I was like, nope, I'm like not looking that up. Something should remain a mystery. But for whatever reason, Wignacor had to get papal approval from Pope Paul V to act outside of the statute. This, of course, represents a problem because Caravaggio is famously wanted for murder in Rome. But it's a problem that can be easily solved by somebody in this chain not telling the entire truth. Either Caravaggio held back from Wignacor, or Wignacor knew the story of the Nooch and held back from the Pope, but the request letter to the Pope was vague on some pretty key details. On December 29, 1607, Wignacor wrote to Francesco Lomellini, the order's ambassador or prior in Rome. The letter referenced Wignacor's desire for the Pope to allow knighthoods for two people, some other guy, and, quote, a person of great virtues, honorable, and respectful. That's the worst description of Caravaggio, but it's who Wignacor was talking about, but he just didn't use Caravaggio's name. Wignacor also wrote a letter to Giacomo Bozio, who was the order's librarian and who was also in Rome, in order to get him to lobby the Pope. This is turning into a big push. We finally get an answer in a letter dated February 7, 1608 from the Pope to Wignacor. Quote, It has pleased the Most Holy Father to approve for Alof de Wignacor, Grand Master of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, authority to present the habit of magistral knight to two persons favored by him, despite the fact that one of the two committed homicide in a brawl. Unquote. That last part, died in a brawl, not 100% accurate. By this point, the authorities in Rome were well aware that this was a prearranged duel, which was way different than killing someone in a brawl, not to mention that this person in question was Caravaggio. Someone didn't give the Pope all the information, though technically the information that was given to him was correct. The Pope just didn't ask any follow-up questions, so it's all good. The papal approval reached Malta on February 15th, and Caravaggio was now officially a novice on the way to becoming a knight. But before he could be officially knighted, the rules of Malta required that all novices, including Caravaggio, spend a year on the island and to pay passaggio, which was a tribute to the order. In the passaggio, it was usually money or gold or title to property. It's to go to the general treasury in order to keep things going. It was agreed that Caravaggio's passaggio, rather than money or gold, was to be a painting because he was basically broke. He was given the opportunity to paint the altarpiece for the Oratory of St. John, which was attached to the Cathedral of St. John in Valletta. That was going to be the Passaggio. 
It was for one of the more recently completed cathedrals that was part of the city's growth ever since the Siege of Malta and the Battle of Lepanto. And the subject of the work was going to be the beheading of, you could probably guess there's going to be a John in there somewhere, St. John the Baptist. The altarpiece had to be completed by the end of summer because Wignacore wanted to publicly reveal the painting on the feast day of the decolation of St. John, which was on August 29th and was the day on which St. John was beheaded. They are super into St. John. And St. John the Baptist is not to be confused with St. John the Disciple, the first apostle of Jesus. These are two different Johns. Growing up and having to learn about this stuff when I was like nine, I always assumed there was one guy named John. The Order of St. John is celebrating the earlier John, the rugged, outdoorsy guy, the one who's often depicted half-naked, wearing animal skins. He was one of the sexy Chico paintings. John the Baptist was also Jesus' cousin and was thought to be the guy who baptized him. The story of his death dated anywhere from 28 to 36 CE, or AD in Christianity, which I always thought meant after death, and that never made sense to me because I thought he died at 33 and couldn't figure out the logic behind the math, and it didn't make sense because it's not true. I was just a moron until legitimately like a week and a half ago. It stands for Anno Domini, which translates to in the year of our Lord, and is a demarcation meaning every year as identified being the epoch of time that Jesus was in. Anyway, at the time of St. John the Baptist's death, the Holy Land, Judea, was ruled by Herod the Great, who was a client king or subordinate king in the Roman Empire. Herod the Great, the Larry King of his day, liked to get married, which he did roughly ten times and had many, many children. One of his marriages was to a woman named Herodias, who was the former wife of his brother, Herod II. He married his sister-in-law. And before those two got divorced, the original Herod and Herodias, they had a daughter named Salome, Herod the Great's niece. And I'm not going to make a blanket statement because it's none of my business about marrying your brother-in-law or sister-in-law. It's not always weird, I guess. I don't know, sometimes love just... Go be happy, but you can't be surprised when people maybe have a couple of questions. I'm not saying they have the right to any answers, but John the Baptist had some questions about the marriage, and he was not shy about voicing them. Herod the Great put John the Baptist in jail for his loud questioning of the marriage, and Herodias and her daughter Salome plotted their own punishment for John. During King Herod's birthday feast, Salome, you know, his own niece, danced so sexily and seductively for him, gross, that Herod said she could have anything she wanted. Really gross. And Salome said, you know that guy John the Baptist who was talking so much shit about my mom? Open his head! So Herod had John the Baptist immediately beheaded because he's the real gross, porny uncle who looks at you too long and tells you too often that you're growing up so fast and he really can't believe it and the severed head of John the Baptist was given to Salome on a platter at the feast. This is the story of a first ballot Hall of Fame saint, beloved, and the patron saint of arguably the most important religious order that Caravaggio is so close to becoming knighted by and becoming a member of. Traditionally, there had been two ways that this lovely story was depicted in art, either the moment before the executioner beheads John or the moment where a pleased Salome is presented with the head. In the spring and early summer of 1608, Caravaggio worked on his passaggio into the order, an altarpiece that measured over 15 feet across and over 10 feet high. 
His untraditional depiction of the scene forces people to be confronted with John's actual martyrdom, frozen in time during the actual beheading. It's not the scene of a lavish feast with royalty and grandiosity around. It's the courtyard of a prison, and it's John having just been dragged out of his cell by an everyman executioner who couldn't fully decapitate John with his sword. He screwed up, so he's reaching for a knife to saw at the neck viscera to complete the job while his servant prepares the plate to put it on. In John's face, it is active, as if he's choking on his own blood while laying on animal skin, a metaphor for the sacrificial lamb. And as an older woman who represents pity for the damned and a jailer look on, there's also a man in prison, painted off to the side to highlight the loneliness of the damned, but he's trying to look at the scene outside, humanity's inherent fascination with death and a morbid curiosity about the one sure thing that binds us all. He might as well be doing Doing laundry and listening to my favorite murder. If you're Wignacor and the Order leadership, you want a painting for this altarpiece that not only captures the faith and determination of your order, but the frailty of the human body juxtaposed to the strength of the human spirit, the very paradox of the human condition. And it is violent and it's brutal, and you want this painting to be so dramatic and powerful that when the knights that are being ordained in that very cathedral, when they're swearing their vows, they're getting all emotionally riled up with the determination to defend Catholicism and possibly die. And I gotta be totally upfront, this is very concerning for me. I don't think these people need any more bloodlust. They're shooting human heads out of cannons. I think it's cool if we don't escalate the situation. In hiding and wanted for murder, Caravaggio provided the Order of St. John a masterpiece that conveyed not only the sacrifice of John the Baptist, but would be a rallying cry to knights for the glory that would be available to them if they were just willing to be martyred for the cause. This is one of the great masterpieces of Caravaggio's career, especially his later career, and a critic from The Guardian named Jonathan Jones said this is one of the top 10 greatest paintings of all time, and I have no idea if that's true or not, but I couldn't find anybody saying he was a total idiot for having that opinion. The beheading of St. John, it was immediately treasured by the order, and Caravaggio had more than paid his entry fee. It was such a masterpiece that it is the only painting that Caravaggio ever put his name on. On the ground, written in the blood from John the Baptist's neck, is F. Michelangelo, the F standing for Fra or Brother. And that is what he is right now. On July 14th, 1608, a year and two days after he arrived on the island of Malta and continuing the grand tradition in this story of people asking for things and not realizing what they were actually asking for until they get it, Caravaggio was sworn as a knight of magistral obedience of the Order of St. John. As a thank you to Wignacor's secretary, Francesco Delantola, for helping get the papal exemption for the lowest order of this knighthood, Caravaggio painted for him Sleeping Cupid, which is a very strange painting. It's this dreamlike image of a magical quasi-baby Cupid, and he's sleeping under the moonlight, and it's kind of dark and weird, and Delantola loved it. This story is exhausting. Now he's a knight, and we have weird, darkness-sleeping Cupid magical babies. I don't know what's happening anymore. 
Wignacourt was so happy with Caravaggio's contribution to the order, though, that he gave Caravaggio the one thing he's never had. Well, first he gave Caravaggio two slaves, so he's a slave owner now. Let's just add that to the pile of shit in this story. But he also gave Caravaggio the one thing that drove him mad that Johnny Testicle had that he didn't, an acknowledgement that he was a master. Wignacore finally gave Caravaggio his gold chain. Not a gold chain from one of the hundreds of cardinal nephews jerking off a ludist and harp players and wine-soaked orgies in Del Monte's palace. No, Caravaggio was given a gold chain by the Grand Master of the Order of St. John himself. Every time this guy falls on his face, somebody picks him up, dusts him off, and then gives him something more. This boy who grew up a country bumpkin, nose filled with the stench of plague death, losing all the male members of his family, his time on the streets with Mario dreaming of what could be possible, the pimping, the murders, all the insanity, he's now somehow made it even higher. Caravaggio has to be so excited to head back to Rome now, not begging for a pardon, but a gold chain wearing badass knight of an ancient order of maybe pirates and murderers, but also an order whose nickname was the Friars of War. He gets to have all of this and then walk up the Johnny testicle, throw a bunch of those crotch hand motions at him because you know Caravaggio's not going to be gracious in victory and then tell Baglione to suck it. We're about to see him unleashed. He's about to be fully shown off, telling dudes to kiss his converse and asking everyone if he's the meanest and the prettiest. Am I the meanest? Sure enough. Am I the prettiest? Sure enough. Am I the baddest mofo low down around this time? Sure enough. Well, who am I? Sure enough. Who am I? Sure enough. Caravaggio now gets to paint as many giant boobs on as many Virgin Marys that he wants. Get drunk with Chico and allow himself to be the little spoon because you know, sometimes it's okay to be vulnerable and want to be held. This is going to be great. Unless... Unless you live your life so impulsively that you don't really think about any of the long-term implications to your actions. Or maybe this move was out of desperation. Maybe there's a lost letter that we don't know about explaining why he swore an oath to the Order of St. John. But reality is about to dawn on Caravaggio really quick. Because you swear your life to the Order, surrounded by not only your current brothers, but the spirits of the ones that have died before them. This isn't some honorary college degree. He belongs to the Order now for life, with a vow of celibacy that, granted, was loosely enforced, but he's going to violate that one for sure. Caravaggio also can't leave Malta without permission, and Wignacore, he has no intention of letting Caravaggio go. When Wignacore wrote to his ambassador about wanting a knighthood for Caravaggio, he used the language per non perderlo, not to lose. Valletta was a growing city, yes, and there were a ton of cathedrals going up, but there wasn't a whole lot of art in the city, because Wignacore had a really hard time trying to convince artists to come down there and complete altarpieces. 
The closest the order got to having an artist come down to the city was in 1606. They begged for some random Florentine artist to come down. They bought him pigments, canvases, they secured his passage to the city, everything was ready to go. But the Florentine artist never showed up. Because Malta is remote, it's hot, everybody appears to be miserable because they can't even joke around about somebody having two wives, the island might get attacked by 20,000 men in any moment, and it just overall sucks. Just imagine how pissed he must have been when he realized what happened. The look on Caravaggio's face when he realized that he'd been trapped, that Wignacore had finally secured one of the great artists of the time. Caravaggio had everything he could dream of, and now he was functionally a prisoner on Malta. After all the help he's gotten, Costanza, Del Monte, everybody, Caravaggio has escaped every tense situation. He's been coddled, enabled, just soaked in privilege because of his talent. But this really wasn't a situation he could just walk away from anymore. Literally. Now that he's a knight of the Order of St. John, he's beholden to Statute 13, which said that no knight could take one step off the island of Malta without the Grand Master's approval. And Wignacore, he was no dummy. It didn't matter what the truth was of how Caravaggio got to Malta, he was there. And Wignacore had no intention of giving Caravaggio the opportunity to take one step off the island. He is the very definition of a flight risk. As we're coming to a close on this episode, and really coming to a close on the long, long-ass journey we've all taken together, many hours that I can't tell you how grateful I am that you've come along the entire way. For all the gaps, the lack of information on a man who lived hundreds of years ago, whose personality we have to try to piece together with inference and deduction, I feel like we can all agree that Caravaggio is not the type of person you want to feel cornered and like he has nothing left to lose. Nobody really knows what caused the events that occurred on August 18th, 1608, just a month. One month. It took him a month after he was ordained as a knight to light the match to this whole situation. According to the investigation that Wignacore and the Venerable Council started the next day, Caravaggio and five other knights busted down the door of Brother Prospero Capini, the organist of the Conventual Church of St. John, and started a brawl. They went into the house to kick the shit out of another brother, a guy named Giovanni Rodamonte Roero, and nobody knows why. The investigators found that the two main aggressors were Caravaggio and brother Giovanni Pietro de Ponte, de Ponte being the one that facilitated the attack and the one who was also carrying a small flintlock pistol at the time that was discharged at least once during the brawl and brother Roero was shot and seriously injured. Yes, we've reached a point in this story where someone gets shot with a pirate gun. The Venerable Council, full of all those senior knights that Caravaggio impressed and painted for, as well as Fabrizio Sforza Colonna, Wignacore, all those guys. They approved his arrest for his role in the brawl and resulting shooting. And on August 28, 1608, the day before the Feast of the Decolato, which commemorated the decapitation of St. John, a holy day for the order, the same day maybe his greatest masterpiece was publicly to be unveiled, Caravaggio was arrested and put in jail at the Castle San Angelo. 
His reality was now a dank, underground cell called a guva, 11 feet below the surface, surrounded by stone with a heavy door above. And he was in that reality while the Order prepared evidence for his trial. This wasn't Rome, where this transaction could be easily washed away by somebody. He assaulted a fellow knight, and not just any knight. Roero was a knight of justice, the highest knight in that order. For the entire month of September, Caravaggio waited for the trial that would certainly defrock him, in addition to giving whatever long prison sentence that would be required. Once this news of his defrocking made it to Rome, a papal pardon would be next to impossible, if and when he got out of prison. And the knights, they already had what they wanted out of Caravaggio, vanity paintings for their leadership, and a masterpiece spiritual propaganda altarpiece to inspire new recruits. If the Order let him get away with this, if they bent the rules, it could be just too costly. This was a very strictly run organization. So Caravaggio stayed in his cell and awaited his justice. Contra nequitiam et insidias diaboli esto presidium. Imperet idideus supplices de pregio. But Caravaggio's not really one for justice. It's just not his style. So in his underground cell, he thought and he planned. And one day, before October of 1608, one of the brothers approached Caravaggio's cell, either to check on him during rounds or to give him food. And as the brother looked down into the cell, he saw 11 feet of stone wall that was imprisoning nobody because Caravaggio was gone. Amen. Yeah, it's a prison break. Now's the part where I look really foolish for trying to put all this in one episode. It took us half of this episode to even get out of Naples, let alone him breaking out of prison. But the next episode will for sure be the last episode of the Caravaggio series. And I just want to say thank you to everyone, mostly for your patience. You all are great, especially when the episodes get a bit delayed. Uh, unless I get hit by a bus, there will be more episodes. Some will just take a bit longer than others. Sometimes life gets in the way, and sometimes I just want to sit down and watch a movie. And for everyone that's been rating and reviewing the show so far, thank you so much. Humbling is the best way I can describe the reviews that are coming in. Very, very humbling. And they're also working. A few weeks ago, the show was the number 702 podcast on the iTunes comedy podcast charts in Japan, which is exactly how I will always think of this show, no matter what happens. I will now obnoxiously tell people that I am big in Japan, and it's only partially untrue. So everybody take care of yourselves, and I will talk to you soon as we finish off the series on Michelangelo Morisi to Caravaggio.